Welcome back to another episode of Conduct Detrimental. It's the NIL Hour. Excited to be back. As always, my name is Taryn Sharma. I'm joined by my co-host, Mike Lawson. How's it going, Mike? Taryn, football is upon us. How you doing? There's no better time of year, my friend. Holly Summers, how's it going? Going great, Taryn. Thanks for asking. And we're really excited this week, aren't we? Because we are joined by a very special guest, somebody that's doing something that I had never heard of before, but we learned that one other person has done this. So really a trailblazer. And that's what we're all about here on the NIL Hour, approaching the things that have not been done before. Josh Strong, how's it going, man? I'm doing well, man. Appreciate you guys for having me on here. Absolutely. It's our pleasure. And so let's jump right in. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what it is that you're doing and uh, and and why it's so notable, why we're so excited about having you on. Yeah, so um, I'm a 1L at Howard University School of Law, and I'm a point guard for Howard University men's basketball team. So I'm a law student athlete. As far as I know, the only active one right now in the nation. So it's definitely, it's definitely a cool thing. Um, it's also very humbling because, you know, it's, it's two tasks that are, they take a lot of time and commitment and to do them together. It's kind of, like you said, it's kind of trailblazing, but, but I'm blessed to be in this situation and how, how it kind of came about organically. So I'm grateful for that. Yeah. This is a, a really amazing that you're playing at the D one level and you're also juggling full-time class load at, uh, at a great law school, one that's produced so many leaders in this country. So you've got about a month, under your belt. How's it going so far? Is it manageable? Yeah, it's been really good. Surprisingly, the support from both the law school and the basketball program has been has been really firm. Uh, it's really been surprising. Just the understanding that both sides have about what, what I got going on and just how everything worked out is really, is really kind of crazy because we practice early in the morning. So before all my classes, so that's not an issue. And my coaches, they always ask me what time I need to leave to get to the school on time because the law school is separate from the main campus. So I got to travel there. But like the support, like the professors, they all been supportive of it. Of course, they 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 have their expectations for me to be in class and, and still perform. But also the basketball program, they've been supportive of what I'm doing. They call Howard the Dream Factory. And what I'm doing is pursuing both of my dreams. So I really credit Coach Blakeney, Director Davis. He's the athletic director who actually uh, went to Cornell Law and was a GA while he was at Cornell Law. So there's there's been understanding from all different parties. And so far, it's been really good. Of course, law school, it's, it's a challenge, but I feel like I practiced a lot of discipline in my undergrad that kind of prepared me for this. So I've been managing pretty well, I would say. Yeah, so let's jump back to that. You said that it uh, arose organically and you mentioned your undergrad experience. Can you tell us about where you're from and and where you played in your undergrad? Yep. So I'm, I'm from Brooklyn Park, Minnesota. It's about 15 miles north of Minneapolis. I went to University of Minnesota Duluth, which is about two hours from from cities is, is northern Minnesota. I was an entrepreneurship major there. I played basketball there for, for the basketball team. And actually, I graduated in two years there because in Minnesota, they have this really cool program called uh, PSEO, post-secondary enrollment option. So I, I came into college with 60 credits. Um, I was able to uh, graduate two years from there and with doing that, I had two years of eligibility. So that's kind of how that kind of set me up to graduate and then have two years of eligibility to pursue something else. But my time at Duluth was really cool. Shout out Coach Wick. Uh, we went to the lead this, this past year. It was uh, It's a Division two school, but a very high level D2 school. I love all my guys there. And it kind of like, again, I kind of credit where I, where I am at now because of everything I went through there. 
and the experience I've had, like as a student athlete, engaging in extracurriculars, being a student leader uh, for different organizations. So getting that time management practice under my belt, whether I knew it or not, kind of prepared me for everything I'm doing now. So it, it's definitely been all in the making, whether I saw it or not. So that's kind of how that's what's positioned me to be where I'm at now. So I didn't realize that you had finished in two years. So are you like 20, 21? Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm 20 years old. That's what people, the word yeah. starting now that we're a month in at the school, people are starting to catch wind and everything. So I, I, I was trying to keep it under wraps, but uh, we're in, <laughs> so, yeah, I'm a, I'm a youngin. I'm a youngin. So we'll keep you off of U Street for now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's been times <laughs> I've had to leave leave the uh, the rooftop, get uh, class get-togethers early because I'm not 21. So <laughs> we're like, why you gotta leave early? And I, I say, I just gotta go. I gotta go. But another thing that kind of adds on to it is I, I am pretty young, so kind of another another trailblazing aspect of what I'm doing. So hopefully, people who have an infrastructure like I I did are able to utilize it to what they want to do. You answered my question because I was going to come in asking, you know, how were you able to to get through, you know, your your undergraduate in two years? But you said you did 60 credits coming out of high school. Yep. That's 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 amazing. I think I had like maybe 10 going in and I was excited. But that 60, that's that's incredible. You know, I had some friends in law school that were on the younger side because, you know, more common programs that you see are like three, three programs where you can graduate mm-hmm. undergrad in three years and then get to, to your law degree for, for the final three years. You did it in two. And then on top of that, you were at the in those two years, not just doing your studies, you were also a division two basketball player at, at Duluth. Mm-hmm. And then now you you've upped the ante where you're now 20 years old, which is young to go to, to, to be a grad student to go to law school. And then you're yeah. like, no, I'm gonna be a division one basketball player as well <laughs> at Howard University and go to a, one of the most notorious law schools in, in the nation. So you know, kudos to you. And that's incredible. I mean, you've said you, you've you been blessed and, and, and that you've got like a good backing and you've got, you know, a good, um, it sounds like you could have a, a good study habit and things like that. But how do you feel like this year going in, you're, you're you know, a couple weeks in and then mm-hmm. now basketball is probably, you've probably had some, some, you know, yep. team practices and things like that, but the season won't kick off for a couple of months. So are you, is that, are you nervous as you get towards like November or, you know, are you excited? I'm, I'm kind of excited as we, Got nearer and nearer. I was kind of just ready to get the ball rolling. Like this August, I just had a different type of burst of motivation to kind of get going. I met with our admissions a lot or in our administration at Howard. And I was like, I don't want to just do this thing. I want to do it well, both on the court and in the classroom. So I would say I have a piece. I kind of credit that to my, my faith in God for doing that. But other, but besides that, also just my discipline, everything I do, I think I prepare for it. I'm um, going in humble with everything. I had a brother who went to law school, so he's been uh, he's been a good resource for me. And at Howard, I can't say enough about like at the law school, the amount of support that three L's, two L's have. We all know the the cliche competitive environment at law schools, and it's there at Howard, but it's more of like a a family environment. Everybody's trying to look out for each other. So I'm definitely confident as we move forward. Like you said, uh, we have been starting ramping up a little bit for practice practices, and that'll be a new challenge when games come up. Because honestly, the the biggest concern both for the basketball program and the law school was traveling or the travel schedule. So once we that's just a bridge we have to cross. We kind of have a good plan going forward. Like everything's kind of worked out pretty well. Like in the spring, we play our conference games are Saturday, Monday, and it just happens in the spring. I don't have class Monday, so a lot of things just kind of kind of fell into place. But there will be some times where we got to make a decision where we figure out what to do. But until that happens, I'm I'm confident with how things are going. That's great. I'm all power to you. Good luck to you. I mean, that's really really exciting. Is Howard a, do they do the Socratic method? Do they do cold calling? <laughs> 
Yeah, so we, we got the sections at Howard. I'm section one. Shout out my section one peeps if you guys are listening to this. Our section, we we got we do cold calling. There is a section, section two. They they have a little bit more traditional cold calling where it's like I just heard some stories about those guys, but they they're they're getting through it. But it, it's definitely like our orientation week, they kind of prepared us. We had like an intro to law class that we had to do where they kind of they they just nipped it in the bud, started calling calling people in an auditorium with the whole class. So yeah, it's something I didn't really, I don't get much anxiety from it because I, I try to come prepared. But I mean, sometimes you get, you, you slip up and you just take your L's. They always tell you take your L's in the in the <laughs> cold call versus on the exam. So, but no, it's, def- it's kind of something like, it just helps you too, like just stay on your toes. Like uh, I'm starting to see the parallels too with like law school and basketball because that kind of helps you stay engaged as well. So the cold call, they definitely do it. I will say that they definitely do it. So you said you had a brother that went to law school. What law school did he go to? Oh, he went to Columbia Law. Nice. Well, very intelligent family here. Yeah, Jeez, it runs yeah. in the family here. Um, <laughs> so, you know, you had kind of said that this is just kind of the way that the path was leading you. Did you kind of always have an idea that you were going to plan on going to law school? Uh, did you plan on doing it this early? You know, how did it kind of work out for you this way? Yeah, so... Like, I've always been blessed to be intelligent. I worked at it. So, like, when you're younger, they say, oh, be a doctor, be an engineer. I didn't really want to do those things because then then rock with the doctor, messing with body parts and all that stuff. But I always had a passion for social justice, like an underlying passion for that. So I figured, like, I kind of always conceptualized law as the vehicle for change. As I've grown, I mean, I've added to that to that mindset. My brother's kind of been able to tell me as his experience as an attorney. But I say all that to say, I kind of knew I wanted to graduate early. Like my brother did PSEO. He didn't do the full, like he didn't, he did part-time in high school. So he didn't do the full-time thing, but I just kind of wanted to do that and maximize it. So I did the full-time PSEO. I knew I wanted to graduate in two years from Duluth. That was a big part of my recruiting actually, because all my credits had transferred there and my coaches there, I just requested them not to slow down my credits or anything. And they were, they were, they were actually very receptive to that. I didn't know what I was going to do this past year after I graduated. That was a lot of, a lot of prayer went into that. I knew I was going to graduate and I had two years of eligibility left. Like I said, we just came off a lead eight run, uh, a lead eight run. So there was a lot of prayer that went into it. But ultimately, God told me to go to Howard and then everything worked out from there. That's amazing. And I know you said that you're interested in, you know, civil rights and social justice and uh, any, you know, obviously this is this is our NIL hour. And we talk yeah. about everything with updates in NIL. You just happen to be, you know, a college basketball player and like the peak of name, image and likeness and everything like that. You kind of saw the before and the in the after now and and we who knows what the future holds for us too and you know is that something that you're interested in as well something that you you talk to your teammates about at, on for, for either when you were in Duluth or or now with Howard yeah it's something I've definitely especially like like you said in the times have have kind of drawn an interest for I kind of do want to as I progress as a lawyer kind of want to steer more towards that private practice and then maybe move into public interest once I get my feet settled on that. So definitely like the NIL, sports law, corporate law realm is something I'm interested in. But as far as conversation with my teammates, it's been a big thing. Not so much at, at the loop because it, it is a D2, it is more local. But even there, I'm hearing from my teammates, they got talks going about getting something going there. But definitely at Howard, like Howard's in the past couple of years, they've, they've been a great draw for especially what they've done as a campus and Winning the MEAC last year, they got a lot of attention um, going their way. Daniel Marks, we got a—he's our chief program strategist, so he kind of manages all the NIL stuff. So we definitely talk amongst ourselves in the locker room about things we want to get into. Um, D Marks, he—he's very receptive of things that we ideas we have. 
any communication opportunities for us. So it's kind of cool because like I am in law school, so I could kind of practice certain things. Not necessarily this year that I learned, but uh, as I move forward to like my two or three years, when I can kind of explore those routes, I can apply them to myself and to 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 my campus. Yeah, at the uh, at Minnesota Law, we started the sports name, image, and likeness clinic. So mm-hmm. if you or any of the guys on the team need those contracts reviewed, be sure to let us know. And also, when you're starting to apply for work, I'm based up here, so let's chat if you want to come home. Holly? I really wanted to ask you, you know, for a lot of students going into law school, it can be pretty jarring. You kind of have to learn how to learn and learn how to study all over again. But you kind of mentioned that you have some discipline that you brought in from undergrad, maybe some study habits. So I'd love for you to tell us a little bit more about maybe your routine and the Mm -hmm. habits that you find successful because you're so amazingly busy, I'm sure. And it's awesome that you're being able to like really balance all this. Yeah, so... Uh, a lot of people like one one thing you'll learn, especially as an incoming law student, you'll hear from different people, different strategies. Kind of the the basic one is do all your readings on weekends and then use the, uh, the weekdays to kind of just review, do mastery, things like that. But people kind of play with that. Uh, for me, I couldn't really play with that. Like my schedule, I do need to read on my weekends and make sure I get all my stuff done on, on weekends. So during the week. I can be really efficient. Efficiency is like the biggest thing for me. It's pretty obvious that it's a requirement. Like I can't really waste much time. Um, that's where the uh, the support from 2Ls and 3Ls upperclassmen really came in. They kind of helped me be efficient in my studying. But again, coming into uh, uh, law school, you really, you kind of cultivate a discipline, but you do have to have kind of combine it with humility because in your undergrad, you can procrastinate, get an A law school you really just gotta be disciplined even if you think you got something you just gotta be really disciplined stay regimented but also kind of have a confidence that you are where you are like i've been genuinely pretty confident in everything i've done but that that doubt sometimes it i don't let it really creep in but like i've i've these thoughts have come up like i am young i am doing something that traditionally some law schools will discourage or some law schools don't allow so it's, it's kind of staying grounded in what what's gotten me to this point being confident in that confiding in people who um, are willing to help and going from there. Yeah, it's awesome that you have a partner in Howard that was willing to take this leap with you. Mm-hmm. And obviously not every place is willing to do that. So somebody that's willing to work with you and and make sure that both of these dreams can kind of come true to play division one basketball and to be able to pursue your law degree at a top school. And that is really just so cool, man. Yeah, it is. And that's it, it just speaks a lot to Howard. And, and it's something special about doing it at HBCU. Like I talked about it, like even in my personal statement to Howard, Howard is somewhere where I really wanted to go. Like I wanted to, if I was going to go to law school this year, I I definitely wanted to go to Howard. And that's what I ended up doing because I kind of view Howard like it kind of is against the grain, just its history and and being HBCU, one of the top law schools, regardless if it's HBCU or not, but also Mm -hmm. having that with it. And then them being able to support me and doing something that's unconventional at a place like Howard where historically speaking, it's been against the grain. So it's it's something that, again, it's an opportunity I'm blessed to have and I'm blessed to do it at Howard. And I'm really, like, it's really, like you said, like Howard's one of the top law schools. Like I'm walking into classrooms that Thurgood Marshall sat in yep. and I'm playing basketball for a really high level program. So it's, it's definitely a blessing. 
Yeah. Howard is a special place for sure. So take us through that, like that pitch process, I guess, right. You, we were talking about it just before uh, we jumped on here, you know, obviously, you know, the stars aligned with Howard here, but um, you know, t- what was your goal going in? Were you looking to just kind of reach out to a, a bunch of law schools and just see if it was possible? How was some of their reactions were they even, you know, I mean, this is, you know, unprecedented. I think you mentioned there was a couple of other people mm-hmm. who have been like a grad student, you know, in law school that was playing, you know, you know, division one sports. So, you know, is it something that they were open to, didn't really know, had to kind of like bring it back to like, see if it was even possible, you know, kind of take us through like your experience with that. Yeah. So I, I applied to a lot of the top law schools. I got into a lot of the ones I wanted to get into, got pretty good or pretty lucrative financial packages from, from some of them. But it was something that I kind of like, I wanted to be transparent. I wanted to tell them, cause I didn't really know what I wanted at the time. I knew I had to make a decision. I didn't know if I went to law school without basketball, if I went to basketball without law school. So that's where the prayer kind of came in. God only to- ultimately told me like, go to Howard and I'm gonna figure it all out. But like, there was a couple of schools that I, I got, again, I got pretty good offers from. And I kind of entered, I, I brought the idea to them and they just thought, some of them just shot it down saying they didn't think it would work. They didn't doubt my ability or anything, but just a travel schedule of something that gave a lot of people concerns. Uh, fortunately for me, like at Howard, my, our, our travel schedule really works out with my school schedule. So that that's good. But yeah, it's just, I think it's just something that is such a rarity. And a lot of law schools want you to succeed as a student. They don't, they weren't telling me no, because they didn't like me. They just wanted me to be able to succeed. But and, and I wasn't able to foster a sort of connection with them so they could understand my ability. They really just knew me from my, my application and what they saw me on a visit. They weren't able to gauge, you know, the the type of person I am. But but beyond all that, but Howard, they, they trusted it. And I was out here for a little bit before they kind of before everything was set in stone. Like we were moving the steps there, but we were kind of evaluating as we went. And ultimately, we ran with it. So it is definitely because a lot of school law schools that have like a no work stipulation for your first year. So it's kind of like the idea. We don't want your one L year to be distracted. But I feel like, again, I've seen I, I saw it was done before and I saw the feedback I was getting from people who went to law school, people who were division one athletes. And I figured I, I was able to do both. Yeah, yeah, that's really cool. I think that's so awesome that Howard really like supported you in that? Because I think that's so important to realize you're also an athlete. That's part of your personality as well as being a student. Something that you said a little bit earlier was that there's a lot of history at Howard Law School. And um, I know you had an interview with the Hilltop and you kind of mentioned how that history and the power that the school has behind it really brought you to Howard. And you kind of want to carry that on. So I'd love to know kind of if you have an idea of what kind of law you want to practice, or if you would go a little bit more in depth of really why Howard was that place and kind of what you want to do there. Yeah. So I kind of alluded to it before. Um, my interest in law stems from my my interest in social justice for marginalized people and underserved populations. My brother's been, again, he's been a really good resource for me because he's in, he's in the legal field right now. And he's kind of communicated to me that you don't necessarily need to confine yourself because you. I am. I do like social justice and I'm passionate for it. I don't need to confine myself to a career set around public interest. I can do that thing, those things, in the confines of big law, private private practice. So my my goal is to eventually find the perfect marriage between public interest and and big law or private practice. I'm taking the exploratory route these first couple of years to see what that looks like. Kind of hearing from mentors and people I'm connected with about pathways they've taken. But yeah, like Howard, like they, they they tell us to be social engineers. Every class is kind of catered to that. 
one thing Howard doesn't want to do is send everybody to one sector because there's really no change that's been happening. If you have the whole class being a public interest lawyer, you, you don't have anyone in business. You don't have anyone in tax. You don't have one, anyone in family law. So they kind of, they teach you to be well-versed and be a social engineer in any way. And it's kind of, it resonates with me because like even in contracts, towards CIF Pro, all these classes, we kind of work in that social engineering to the cases we read. So it's definitely been something that it hasn't surprised me, but it's something I really appreciate about Howard. Really, they 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 are what they say they are. Well, I definitely think that you're in a really good position as like a current 3L. I think that you are way ahead of a lot of people who are starting law school and who mm-hmm. are even in their two and 3L years saying things like you have to be confident, but you also have to be humble. You also don't need to pigeonhole yourself. So kudos to you that you're realizing that now because it is hard for a lot of people to start law school and think, okay, I can be confident. I, I belong here, but also I don't need to be overconfident. And then also like, I only want to do this type of law. So the idea that you're being really open is awesome. And I, I definitely congratulate you on that. Yep. Thank you. That's a testament to, again, the people that I've been blessed to be around. Like even, it's kind of crazy to think about because both my, my older brother, he he went to law school. Um, and my other older brother, he's a division one basketball player right now. He plays for Colorado State. His name is Josiah Strong. So I've been kind of, I'm like the combination of both of them. So I've been able to kind of pick their brains on the aspects that they engage in. That's awesome. Having a good support system is so important in life and especially in law school. You got that right. <laughs> I, I think I'd speak for our whole group and uh, I just, I have goosebumps hearing from you. So uh, I, I have no doubt that you're going to be incredibly successful and it was so Great to be able to hear from you. Josh Strong, thanks for joining us. Appreciate you guys for having me. Uh, it's a blessing to share my story, and I'm hoping I can, can share it to more people as we move forward. If you guys want to follow Josh's story, Josh's season here, follow him on Twitter, jstrong underscore zero. I'm definitely going to be following you this season. So uh, good luck, and uh, thanks for joining us. Yeah, appreciate you. Thanks again to Josh Strong for joining us. I mean, what an incredible story. What an incredible person and family. That was uh, awesome. And I'm sure that we're going to be hearing so much more from Josh in the future. Once again, our podcast is sponsored by Themis Bar Review. Holly, you tabled for Themis today. And so Holly could tell you that you can unlock the key to bar exam success when you choose Themis Bar Review. With an extensive collection of over 4,000 MBE-style practice questions, including 1,375, very specific, plus NCBE-licensed questions, Themis ensures that you are prepared to tackle the bar. Comprehensive outlines, digital flashcards, and personalized learning tools are just a few of the many resources that help you prepare. Their consistent pass rates are a testament to your future success. Enroll with Themis before September 30th and save up to $1,100 on your bar review course and use the code CONDUCTFALL23, CONDUCTFALL23, great code, to get an extra $100 off. Themis Bar Review, best bar review company in the galaxy. We love Themis. Thanks again to Themis. And here's a message from Spotify. So unfortunately, we have two UNC stories on the docket tonight, and you know that I hate talking about Carolina, but we will, uh, because they're important stories to name, image, and likeness. So where should we start here? Uh, Mike, you want to tell us about Tez Walker? 
Yeah, let's talk about Mr. Devontae Walker. So this has been all over Twitter. The story is that Tez Walker uh, has transferred for the second time, and I'll get into the first two. Uh, second time to UNC, he is going to be, you know, attempting to play football for the UNC program. And he has been denied a waiver, which means that for this season, he would be ineligible to participate with UNC Tar Heels football program because this was the second transfer, the one-time transfer rule that the NCAA had imposed goes against him here. And he does not, you know, the new rule that the NCAA has passed is that they're going to be more strict with two-time transfers. So in this situation, Devontae Walker, uh, he starts out his his career going to North Carolina Central. So he's from he's from North Carolina, and he he stays he stays home, he, you know, with his career NC Central. But COVID canceled the 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 football season uh, when he first attended NC Central. So he transferred to Kent State. Um, so he didn't even play a single game at NC Central. Then he transfers to Kent State, and there were a lot of issues that he, you know, began to suffer. He was, you know, far from home. He had some mental health struggles, and he decided that he wanted to come back home. And he transferred again to UNC uh, to be a part of their football program. Now, because this was his second transfer, he needed to apply for a waiver for eligibility through the NCAA. And then they have cast their decision uh, they actually cast their decision earlier in August, and then UNC uh, appealed on his behalf for his eligibility, even even going as far as getting an affidavit from NC Central and Kent State uh, to to support his application. And and you know I'll go back to that in a second, actually, why I think that's a big deal. But you know they did make their final decision saying that he was ineligible for the 2023 uh, football season for UNC's football program, and, and it is devastating. And and I think another piece of this too is this is essentially a retroactive rule as it relates to him with the transfer rules because he transferred from NC Central to Kent State before the NCAA actually made their determination about them being more strict and kind of putting the bringing the hammer down on two-time transfers for undergrads. You know, it was a slippery slope during COVID because the NCAA allowed these one-time transfer rules, no punishments, you don't need a waiver. Uh, where before, when you transferred, you know, there there were a lot of these rules where you need to get a waiver or you would lose your eligibility. And they kind of were a little bit loose with their rules. And then they became very strict about two-time transfers. So your second transfer. And and we're seeing a lot of different things happen uh, where there's players who are, you know, transferring because the, their coach left their program. Uh, we, we saw that with a basketball player, Matt Cross. He was a basketball player with Miami who transferred to Louisville. Coach Chris Mack leaves and then he transfers to UMass and plays with UMass. So now what, what this rule is, is that they're, they're, making an example out of, you know, players like Matt Cross where you can't transfer multiple times. We're seeing coaches having the ability to to move around. And, you know, these are the coaches that are recruiting these players. And then all of a sudden, you know, they're kind of devastated. I, we talked about this before. Jesse Edwards transferred from Syracuse to West Virginia. And then Bob Huggins ends up, you know, he gets himself into some hot water and he ends up, you know, stepping away from the program. Now you you look at a, a Bob Huggins who was a notorious coach. He he you know recruited Jesse to come in there. Jesse just used his transfer to come to West Virginia. Now you know are you stuck? You have to apply for a waiver now to to go somewhere else. Like it, it's a it's a difficult thing for for some of these athletes. And 
a lot of what's happening too with specifically Tez Walker uh, is, you know, backing and support for him. And I think the big thing, what I, what I mentioned before is that, you know, NC central and Kent state put their support for him. And a lot of the, the purpose behind these transfer rules is to essentially pre- prevent athletes from kind of shopping around, right? You know, if there's potential for recruiting violations and, you know, preventing like inducements and encouraging athletes, well, if they have the freedom, then it's a lot easier to, you know, for an athlete to be induced to come to certain schools. So I get there's a purpose behind these rules, but at the same point, there's also a purpose why there's a waiver situation and athletes can apply for a waiver. And he also had a substantial reason for, for changing and moving from Kent state back home to, to UNC because of some mental health struggles that he had. So there's a, there was a lot of reasoning in here of why this probably could have been a waiver that was granted by the NCAA. And it, it wouldn't have really been that big of a deal. It probably wouldn't have been that big of a story, but now it is because they have issued a, their, their final decision that he is going to be ineligible for the 2023 season. So. Yeah, and they were blasted in response by Mac Brown, who has been pretty steadfast in his support of Tez Walker, understandably. Uh, he, he wants uh, Tez to be able to play, not just because he's a great football player. I'm sure that that's part of it, but also because, you know, there's a young man that has entrusted the North Carolina program with his collegiate future and, and beyond. And, and so Mac Brown stated that, I don't know if I've ever been more disappointed in a person, a group of people, or an institution than I am with the NCAA right now. It's clear that the NCAA is about process, and it couldn't care less about the young people it's supposed to be supporting. And from my perspective, it really is that the NCAA unfailingly cares about the wrong thing. Who cares if Ted Walker is allowed to play? Does his former school care? No, they want him to be able to play. Does his current school care? No, they want him to be able to play. Uh, Does his other former school care? No, they're also submitting an affidavit for him to be able to play. It blows me away that the NCAA dedicates its resources towards this sort of stuff when, you know, Carolina committed academic fraud for several decades. The NCAA did nothing about it. And so if you if you really care about student athletes getting the benefit of their bargain, you would care about something like that, fake paper classes and all of that. But they don't. They care about preventing this one guy from being able to play. Now, I saw some comparisons to JT Daniels, who's on his fourth school. And I think that that one is a little bit unfair. I think that, okay, the NCAA is changing the way that it's policing these rules. Well, JT Daniels transferred the first time to Georgia during a more lax environment. And then he transferred again after he graduated from West Virginia. So, I, I can see why people would point to that example because it's also well known because he's also on his uh, on a multitude of schools that he's attended. But to me, I, I don't see a, a reason why the NCAA has to come down hard on Tez Walker here. Tez Walker has seemingly had these mental health issues, at least to the point that he's convinced the people who are who are around him that this is a is a significant issue to him. And so preventing him from being with his family, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. It just seems unnecessary. And so the NCAA consistently does things like this where they they just take odd positions and they die on some weird hills. And so the question that I have for you two, you read Mac Brown's comments. They're they're very fiery. They're very aggressive. Do you think that this is something that is going to be a a shot across the bow where what if Carolina just plays Tez Walker 
Do you think that that we could see something like that? I don't think that they would win in court necessarily, but you know, maybe that starts the the ball rolling. What do you guys think? I think that if North Carolina were to play him because there's been like a lot of backlash and because coach Brown was like so vocal about his like disdain for their decision, I think that the NCAA definitely would come down hard on the, with the hammer because they're kind of on that world stage right now where everybody's like, he should be able to play what's going on. Everybody's upset. We're all looking at the NCAA, like what the, heck is going on here so I think if they were to just play him like although I wish I could see him play and I wish that he was able to I think the NCAA would try to figure out some sort of punishment for it, North Carolina and then probably a lasting punishment for Tez as well um, I'd like to go back to something that you said though that kind of goes into what something Mike was saying too is this rule was really installed I guess and they really said that they were going to start cracking down on more than two transfers so that we could kind of avoid a lot of the inducement that Mike was talking about I think that it's important to really again note the fact that the his two other schools NC Central and Kent State both signed those way or both signed those affidavits they both signed those affidavits saying like we are perfectly fine with him playing we want him to play if it was one of those situations where they felt like North Carolina was poaching him or if he was being induced to come play for them I feel like one of the other schools like Kent State would have an issue with that and would not go ahead and submit that affidavit there's really no way I see UNC actually playing him I just don't think that they're going to do that I think that would cause more problems than it actually being like them trying to take a stand to, against the NCAA I mean every even the chancellor of UNC you know has has made a statement against the NCAA for for uh, you know disagreeing with with what happened here with with Tez so it's it's very clear you know they've, they've made their message very clear that they disagree with the decision that the NCAA has made this kind of goes back to the the you know if I'm if I'm arguing on the other side like this is a this is a voluntary association that they're a part of that they agreed to abide by their rules and their legislative decision making whether it's arbitrary in their sense or not I mean I understand it's difficult and that I, I disagree with it but you know whether or not UNC you know plays him in defiance of their decision I, I think that would kind of go against the whole model that they walked into this goes back to our other argument that we think that the NCAA doesn't even need to exist in the first place and that this should be maybe conference run and this is a, a decision that the ACC should have made so I mean this is it's all it's all uh, all over the place because the 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 current state of the NCAA and college athletics but I I think it, it's it's difficult he, he's gotta he's got to take the year off I think he still has one more year of eligibility left so and then you know we see we go from there I think he has two, but yeah, okay. um, I, I'm not. I don't. He doesn't lose this year if he's not allowed to play, does he? Yeah, he loses it unless he hasn't used used his redshirt year. Oh wow! So okay. there's the old transfer rules were if you if you could use that year your transfer year as a redshirt if you hadn't redshirted. But say you come in, you're a really good athlete. You redshirt your freshman year. You play one year, then you transfer. If you didn't get a waiver or you didn't you weren't allowed to transfer, you had to sit out that next year at that school and then you lose a year of eligibility. And then so now you've you've gone down to one year of eligibility following that. So if he hasn't redshirted, then maybe he could redshirt. Uh, I, I don't know. There's not enough information I could see about his eligibility. It's probably out there, but that that would be, you know, 
something that they'd have to also discuss. Did the NC Central year count as a redshirt? Yeah, it might. Well, no, because I don't know if it counted the, as a year of eligibility at all. No, because it definitely didn't because the NCAA gave all of those athletes a year of eligibility back. That's why some athletes could play like a sixth year because they gained, even if they played during the pandemic or whatnot, they gained that year of eligibility back. It's like it never even happened. Yeah, it's it just seems like improper application of the rule. Even even if you're trying to cut down on these two time transfers, this is a guy that has really only transferred one time, and it's from Kent State to Carolina. The first time his school was canceled, he wasn't allowed to play, so he went to a place where he was allowed to play, and then took the the opportunity to go to a second school. So. It's just another it's just another example of the NCAA being, you know, a perfect situation like it's whose line is it anyway, where the they don't care about the players and the points don't matter. I can say it better myself. Holly, do you have anything else on this? Yeah, I'd just like to kind of bring up something else that Coach Brown said that I thought was just like so powerful and really resonated with me is he was saying, just imagine what it's like for Tez to be so excited to come home and have a chance to fulfill his childhood dream of playing for North Carolina in front of all his friends and family, only for that to be taken away despite doing nothing wrong. Um, which kind of goes back to also what Mike was saying when the NCAA decided that they were going to announce that they were going to really crack down on this for every two transfers. That was two days after he started at North Carolina. So he really went to North Carolina thinking, I'm going to be able to play. It's going to be fine. I'm going to be able to show my friends and family. I'm going to be home, whatever. And then for that to just be taken away without really any sort of, I guess, reasoning. It's a situation that I think what we're seeing now is it's a, it's a cautionary tale for, for the next athlete to, to, to actually consider it's going, it's reverting back to the early transfer rules where they were more strict on the transfer rules that they be, they've become more lenient and now they've geared back where they're going to be a lot more strict now. So it is terrible. I, again, we all kind of are in agreement that we disagree with the decision that they're making here, but you know, it's, it's now, like I said, it's a, it's a, a warning sign for all the, you know, other athletes out there who are debating on whether or not they want to, you know, transfer. So it's another situation and we've seen it multiple times where the rule is in place and we don't like it, but the rules there. And unfortunately the athletes have to abide by it. And we're in a same situation. We just saw after the U S open where there's a, a college, you know, tennis player, Fiona Crawley, there's a rule there. It's a rule that's been followed for years before at name, image, and likeness. It's been there. And, you know, now that she had to follow it, there's there's been some uproar. So, Holly, you want to tell us about Fiona Crawley? I would love to. So, Fiona Crawley is currently a student at the University of North Carolina as well. She is currently the number one women's D1 tennis player in the NCAA. So, she is amazing. She went to the U.S. Open as a wild card player. And while she was there, she ended up winning and she earned $81,000 for her time at the U.S. Open and for all the matches that she won. However, she did have to forfeit that money because of an NCAA eligibility rule that says college athletes uh, cannot claim 
prize money that is over $10,000 per year. So she had to forfeit the $81,000 that she earned while she was playing. And one of the things that she said was she worked her butt off at the U.S. Open. And it seems so unreal to her that these football and basketball players can make millions of dollars with their NIL deals. And she can't take the money that she earned and that she worked so hard for while she was playing for the U.S. Open. So it's just one of those other situations where we look at an NCA rule that's been in place for kind of a long time and wonder, does this need to be changed? Does the NCA rules need to kind of evolve with the current NIL landscape, even if the rules really don't have anything to do with NIL? Yeah, I've talked about this rule before. It's always It was always an interesting caveat that not a lot of people knew. It, it actually kind of surprised me when I was at, at Syracuse uh, to kind of like learn about the rule because it, it is for a certain number of uh, prize money. And a lot of the Olympic sport athletes have the ability to go and play in tournaments where they could win some money. Golf is, is another good example where, where you could be a, an amateur golfer or, or even play in a pro-am or a pro-tour if you if you really need uh, are good enough. To earn some prize money and, and 10000 is is your limit. So that was always kind of the the confusing piece to me uh, for athletes earning compensation, even though the NCAA and their amateurs, amateurism argument with the Alston case and, and things like that, like all the all the silliness where the rules kind of just don't make sense. But again, it's just a, it's a shame. Uh, she you know, she's 21 years old. She's the top athlete in college. I mean, she's got a, a bright future ahead of her. She seemed to have been handling it pretty well. You know, she she won and she she had to give up that money. It's a it's a shame. And people are kind of giving, you know, bashing her, saying like, oh, screw college, like take the 81, go pro. Maybe she maybe she wants to get a degree, you know, like she she probably has other, you know, other options. She can she can, you know, make her skills a, a lot better. Uh, we'll probably see her in more U.S. Opens in the future. So I'm sure it's it's that the prize the prize money for her is just going to keep going growing. I think it's even like a more like a, a cooler thing than that. It's not just the degree, you know, because you could take school online. She cares enough about her teammates and wanting the team to have that success that she doesn't want to give up her senior year to do that. And it sucks that that's the position that she's been put in where she's deciding between this amount of money, which is a significant sum. $81,000 is a lot of money. It's more money than I have. But to have to decide between $81,000 and a, a time in your life that's never going to come back when other people are counting on you because you're the best player, I, I, that was a really noble decision, I think, that she's had to, that, that she made here. And it, it's, it sucks that she's had to make that. I was going to say exactly that. One of the things that she also said in her interview with ABC News was that she's having a really big identity crisis with this because she really did want to have her senior year. She didn't want to give up that last year of eligibility um, and kind of jeopardize that by accepting the money because she really has grown to love her team and to love her coaches and that she feels like a family with them. But competing and having that experience and then not being able to take that prize money, she said, really caused like a crisis in her. And for a little bit, she didn't really know what to do. I just think Again, it's like one of those situations where it seems arbitrary a little bit. Like that is a lot of money, like you said, Taryn. That is life-changing for some people, probably life-changing for most college students right now. And I feel like people shouldn't be put in a position where they have to pick between changing their life, kind of being set up for a while, being able to pay for school. I don't know like what her scholarship status is, but 
being able to pay for school, set yourself up for a long time, and then also having to choose between what you love to do, playing on your team, kind of enjoying your last year of college. I don't, it, a lot of people aren't in a position to reject that amount of money. A lot of people are in a position to make that decision, and I don't think they should have to. I'll throw a prediction out there. She's got a ton of publicity from this, not only just US Open, but because she's forfeited the, the prize money. She's going to get an NIL deal. It's going to be for a lot more than $81,000. But whoever that company is, a huge PR for them would be the first check that she gets is $81,000. That would be very smart. Mike, are you sure you want to be a lawyer, man? You could do more. <laughs> I'm sure that she already has deals, right? Um, she she wears Philo when she's playing. I'm sure that that's some sort of deal. But it it's just like a, another miss. I, I don't know. I, I don't see a reason for her not to be able to to take this, it's not like that money is affecting the internal sanctity of college tennis. If she ends up getting paid for a different event, a different set of competitions to play there, the USTA is not awarding her that prize money because she's playing at North Carolina. They're awarding it to her because she did well in this tournament. I wonder what the, the long-term ramifications of this rule are, especially if all of the money is being funneled towards football. All of this TV money goes towards football. And these Olympic sports maybe get left behind. I wonder if a change in the rules might improve the odds of these Olympic sports thriving in a new marketplace where, you know, it's only football. Or if football breaks off, say that all of the CFP eligible teams break off into their own thing and they're self-governed and everything else is left, and the NCAA just does basketball and the Olympic sports, does a rule change help those student athletes to be able to access the resources that they need in order to compete at a high level because those funds may not be uh, available to them in a new environment where the football money isn't necessarily trickling down like it has been? No, it's a good point. It's a good point. And I, I mean, we're, we're, we're also talking about the ever-changing nature of what the NCAA model is going to look like, right? Like you just said, if the college football programs end up breaking off or something like that. But it's also in the sense that we've been so keen and focused and laser focused on name, image, and likeness and athletes earning compensation for their, for, you know, compensation for their, their play. There are all these other rules that are still there where this, this has been a rule. This has been a rule for a very long time and nobody really thought to also kind of throw that in the mixed bag, right? Alston was a case about non-athletic, uh, you know, academic, educationally related benefits, right? It wasn't about name, image, likeness. It was about athletes actually having the ability to earn compensation in the form of educationally related benefits, but that was capped. So they made the argument that, okay, if we're not going to be able to earn compensation for our athletics, we at least should be able to get more compensation for other benefits that, you know, have us, you know, living here and, and things like that. So this is another piece where this has nothing to do with my college athletics. It's I'm not representing my college. Well, she is in a sense, but, you know, she's not there representing the NCAA or UNC. She's there yeah. representing herself or like athletes going in. And the whole purpose of this rule is athletes having the ability to go perform for their country and for their honor, and here's a kickback, you can get up to $10,000 by doing that, going to a tournament, representing yourself, representing your country, something like that. It's another one of those potential cases where it's like, 
is that a similar kind of uh, cause of action under awesome where that shouldn't be capped? That should not be capped at $10,000. Good point. Yep. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I was reading, I was kind of trying to go through a lot of the public opinion on this situation, reading through Twitter comments. And somebody said that this was just another arbitrary rule that the NCAA is using to exercise some sort of control. So they don't make themselves obsolete, kind of bringing this out. Um, and I'm, concerned for the NCAA. I know that's crazy to say, but I'm concerned that this is another situation where they are exercising their control over these rules and then trying to make themselves known, trying not to make themselves obsolete, but the backlash from it will really just kind of bring us all back to thinking, does the NCAA really need to exist if these are the kind of rules that they're enforcing that doesn't allow someone who earned money outside of the school realm, outside of the like student athlete realm um, to have to forfeit that money. There's yeah. something to look forward to, the NCAA becoming obsolete. Yeah, That's well, right. I, I think that these two stories just kind of are a testament to there probably is some form in which the NCAA exists and and uh, is more efficient, more effective, but it's one where it uses a little bit more common sense. And, and I think that that's so severely lacking. And it hasn't changed at all under Charlie Baker. It's basically the same thing, except they hired a politician because he's better at lobbying than, uh, than the previous guy was. So yeah, um, we'll put a pin in that one. These stories aren't going anywhere. And the, you know, that new ones pop up every week. And so let's finish here. One of our favorite segments, what to watch for. Mike, you want to get us started? Yeah. In good fashion, we're, we're kicking off this past weekend with college football season. I'm just excited to see how the college football season really shakes out with the conference realignment and the, the Pac-12 being, I don't even know, but it's interesting already. And tonight was the kickoff of the NFL season as well. So I'm just excited for, for football season and to, to see how the season goes for college football. Yeah. The, it, your point is correct that this is really like the last year of this iteration of realignment, which basically survived like eight years or something like that. So we had one system that was kind of around for a long time. And then we had this, which has been like eight, 10 years, and now we'll have a new one and it'll be like the power three or something like that. So it's, it'll be interesting. I, I saw today that the Mountain West is interested in adding Oregon State and Wazoo and that they want to then adopt the Pac-12 name. So those rights to the names and images of the Pac-12, 108 year old conference, that was effectively killed by the moves of USC, UCLA, Washington, Oregon, and uh, Utah, and Colorado, whether that is now a, uh, a new conference, which we don't necessarily think of as like a power five, but still has that, that name pride. I'm also going college football with what I'm watching. Uh, last week, the Gophers on Thursday night played a very weird game with Nebraska, where the only touchdown that was scored until the last couple of minutes was on a botched trick play where the quarterback for Nebraska, Jeff Sims, who transferred from Georgia Tech, dropped the ball. And then him dropping the ball made everyone think that it was a it was a dead ball, incomplete pass. And uh, instead, there's a receiver wide open in the corner of the end zone. And so he just flings it down there. 
And uh, so it's it's 7-3 and then 10-3, and it looks like Nebraska's going to win uh, their first game in the Matt Rule era. Gophers get a big-time touchdown on fourth down. Uh, Ethan Kelly-Manis throws to Daniel Jackson. Daniel Jackson does one of the most absurd moves that I've ever seen where he holds his left foot in the air high enough that it doesn't touch the ground until his right foot toe taps in the end zone, just barely getting that one foot down. And the Gophers ended up winning on a last second field goal. That's all great. But the cool thing is that then Daniel Jackson had a t-shirt that was out the very next day from the Gophers collective, which is called Dinky town athletes, great group of, of people over there that are doing what they can to improve Gopher athletics. And not only does the t-shirt have the toe tap, which is awesome. It's available in a bunch of different colors. You have the Minnesota logo, the the block M on the helmet. I just thought that that was such a great testament to what NIL should be, that scrape between the student athlete being able to, to take advantage of their, their image, something cool that they did on the football field. And also the university is showing their support for it by allowing that logo to be used, that's almost certainly going to sell more uh, t-shirts than just a blank helmet of a guy toe tapping. So I thought that that was cool. I want to see more of that type of scrape, that type of collaboration between a university's athletic department, their IP, the uh, collective, and the student athlete. Holly? Yeah, I think that's so cool. Um, We've had kind of a hot couple weeks for NIL deals with College starting back up, school starting back up, college athletics starting, football starting. One of my favorites is currently the Oklahoma State, the Pokes with the Purpose Collective partnered with Wilson Cadillac to provide 10 Cowboy basketball players, men's basketball players with Cadillacs. And they are allowed to drive these Cadillacs only for the fall and spring semesters, which is very interesting. I feel like we haven't seen something like that yet that has a, I'm not going to say time limit, but saying you can have the car only for these two semesters. A lot of times it's like, you can keep the car. I haven't really seen one that's like, we're going to take it back. So I am interested to see where Wilson Cadillac goes with that. If the players have to return the cars, will they then sell the cars as used by saying these were used by Cowboy basketball players? Kind of interesting. I'm ready to see where that goes. So I'll be looking next spring. That's what I want to watch for. That's a good point, Holly. So let's wrap this one up, put this one in the books. Appreciate you guys for listening. And uh, as always, you can find us at Con Detrimental on X on Twitter. I'm at TK Sharma Law. Holly is at Slam Dunk Summers. And Mike is at Mike Son of Law. Next week, we're going to have our very own Jason Morin on. He broke the story about the Jervon Dexter deal with Big League Advance, a former Florida football player who's now with the Chicago Bears. And I've seen some places tweeting out the same story, and they're not crediting my man Jason. And that's wrong. If you're one of those accounts on X, Twitter, that's doing stuff like that, incredibly lame. Don't do that. Don't be that guy. It's so much easier to just say, hack Jason Morin. You're already paying $8 for this service. I know you're not limited by characters. Give my man his due. Anyway, as always for the the Dans, the entire group, thanks again for listening. We'll see you next week on another episode of Conduct Detrimental.